Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now the Bible says that God has created everything in this world for his glory. And that includes you and me. So if you and I were created for God's glory, I want to ask you a question. How do we then glorify God if that's the end for which he has created us? How do we glorify God? Now some might quickly prop their hand up and say, well, I glorify God by going to church. Still others might say, I glorify God by going to Bible study groups or going for evangelism, doing this or doing that. Still others might say that I glorify God by listening to sermons, not just on a Sunday, but even during the week and you know, listening to Christian music and singing Christian songs all throughout the day and praying. Still some others may even say I glorify God by serving others helping others when they're in trouble and encouraging others. Now, all of these things are good things. And certainly, these are all things that a person who glorifies God can certainly do these things. But there's one problem. And the problem is this. You can have someone who is part of a cult, for example, Or you can have someone who's an unbeliever do the exact same things. Like come to church and listen to sermons and perhaps help others. But when they do these things, these activities do not glorify God. Or even as believers, there are times when we can do these activities, but we can still not glorify God just because of where we might be at. So why is this the case? See, because ultimately glorifying God is not about just mere external activities. Glorifying God is about having a heart that is lived in submission to God's revelation. Glorifying God is about having a heart lived in submission to God's revelation. Yeah, sure, as a result of having that heart, it will lead to certain activities for sure. But ultimately, it's about having that heart lived in submission to God's revelation. Or to put it another way, it's knowing God and responding rightly to that knowledge of God. Now let me ask you, so then, how do you know God? I mean, do you just walk around and just sort of discover who God is? No, I mean, that's not possible in one sense, merely through human strength or human wisdom or human reason or any other mere human effort. Mere human effort cannot help us to know God. 
Why? Because God is so great, so holy, so other than, that unless God reveals himself, we cannot know God in our own strength. So God has to reveal himself to us, for us to know him. Now theologians describe two ways in which God reveals himself. The first is called general revelation or natural revelation. And that's God revealing himself through nature and through conscience. The second way that theologians describe God's revelation is special revelation. Now this special revelation is through the word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And it is this special revelation that saves people and transforms people. So God has to reveal himself for us to know him and to glorify him. And the more we know God, the more we can glorify God. Now Psalm 19 is a psalm about God's revelation. More specifically, Psalm 19 is is about God's glory in his revelation. Now, very broadly, Psalm 19 can be divided into three parts. Verses 1 through 6 talk about God's glory in general revelation. Verses 7 through 11 talks about God's glory in special revelation. And verses 12 through 14 talks about God's glory in personal revelation. And so what I want to do this morning is primarily focus our attention on verses 1 through 6 of this psalm, which talk about certain details of general revelation of God. And I trust that this will cause us to further understand the general revelation of God and enjoy his revelation, and it will encourage us to, as a result, further honor God and glorify him with our lives. So let's look at some of the details of this general revelation of God that we see in verses 1 through 6. First we see the message of the revelation, of general revelation, and that's God's glory. That's in verse 1. Verse 1 reads, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. The heavens, as in the, the, the place that is far above the surface of the earth, that which is seen, the sky, and even outer space that we cannot even see with our own eyes, it all declares the glory of God. You know, according to the Israelite, they would, you know, one of the ways they, they would describe the entire universe was in two parts, as heaven and earth. And which is why time and again you read in the scriptures the God of heavens and the earth. It's another way of saying God of the universe. Because as far as they were concerned, there was the earth and there was the, the heavens above. And so the idea in verse 1 is this. That all you inhabitants of the earth, look up and see what's above you. 
Look at what the heavens are declaring. Look at what the sky is proclaiming. They're declaring God's glory and they're declaring that they are his handiwork. They're saying, we are created by the God of this universe and we bear his signature or his fingerprints. You know, look at the power of the sun. It points to God's power because it is he who has made the sun. Look at the splendor of the moon and the stars. It points to God's splendor because it is he who has created the moon and the stars. Look at the definite design and the order in the heavens and it points to the wisdom of God because it is he who has made the heavens. They are all his handiwork. They all point back to God, the one true living God who created the heavens and the earth and there is none like him. You know, and even when the Israelites, when you think of the people of God in the Old Testament, when the Israelites, despite knowing all this, despite having these Psalms and Genesis and all that, they went after false gods. They went after the false gods and idols of the nations and listen to what God says to them in Jeremiah 10 verses 11 and 12. It says, Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he, talking about God himself, who made the earth by his power who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. The God of the Bible alone and he alone has created the entire universe, including the heavens above us. But isn't it ironic in this godless world You know, how people can look at a painting and they say, wow, what a beautiful picture. I mean, look at the intricacies of, you know, the way, look at the brush strokes of the paint. I wonder who painted that. I wonder who that artist is. And yet when they look at the universe, and yet when they look at the skies and the galaxies and the stars and so on, and they say, it is so beautiful, so extraordinary, so precise, and so much of design and beauty in it. And yet, they deny that there is a maker behind it. Isn't it ironic? But the Bible is so clear that heavens didn't just happen through a random sequence of events or some kind of evolutionary process. It is God who made the heavens and the earth. And there is purpose in creating them. And the purpose is this. The heavens serve as signposts pointing back to its creator. But not only does it point back to the one true creator, the heavens, verse 1 says the heavens declare God's glory. Now, what's God's glory? Now, typically in the Bible, God's glory is used to refer to the the visible manifestation of God's splendor or his beauty. That's typically how God's glory is described in the Bible. Now, we all know Exodus 33, you know, for example, when Moses says to God, show me your glory. 
What is he saying? He's saying, Lord, would you manifest your splendor, your beauty to me? Would you manifest that to me? So that's normally how God's glory is used in the Bible. But there are certain instances in the Bible where God's glory can also mean reverence or respect. Here's how one scholar uh, said. He said that when God's glory is, is the result of verbs like give or tell or sing or declare, they're ways of ascribing honor to God. So for example, give him glory. Tell of his glory, sing of his glory, declare his glory. They're all different ways of ascribing glory and honor to God in the context of public worship. So for example, if you look at Psalm 66 verse 2, it says, give to him glorious praise. Or some translations would have, make his praise glorious. Psalm 29.1, it says, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Or Isaiah 42 and verse 12, it says, Give glory to the Lord and declare his praise. Now, in all those areas where it talks about uh, glory and it's associated with the Lord, it's not talking about the manifest splendor of God. But in all these contexts, the glory of God has the idea of ascribing honor to God in the context of worship. And when you think of ascribing honor to God, one thing we must keep in mind is also that it's not just about the lip service. It's, it's, that it's about honoring God with both our lips and our actions should also correspond to that. You know, if you think about how God speaks to Israel in the Bible again and again, where they were guilty of worshiping and honoring God with their lips, yet in the way they lived their lives, they lived in a way that made God appear worthless, not worthy, because they lived disobedient lives just going after false gods. So here's what it all means. The heavens the expanse above us, are worshipping God publicly through their declaring and their telling. And this is what they're saying as they worship him. They're saying the one true living God is our creator and he is deserving of honor and attention and obedience. This is the God that commands glory from all of his creation. So this is a subtle thing, but I think it's important for us to understand. See, the heaven's declaration isn't just about the existence of God. It's also about the recognition of God. It isn't merely that God is or that he simply exists, but it is that God is worthy of honor and attention and obedience. That's what the heavens are declaring and calling all of creation to do that along with them. And what a great reminder it is for us as well, right? That as we as we look at the heavens, that we would be reminded to live in a way that honors God. 
that to the watching world, we would not live in a way that makes God appear worthless, but our lives would show others how worthy he indeed is. So that's the first thing that we see about this general revelation, about its message, about God's glory. The second thing that we see about this revelation is we see the frequency of this revelation and it's continual. Look at verse 2. It says, Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So the idea is this, the heaven's declaration or the heaven's speech about God's glory, it's daily and it's nightly. It's every minute and it's every second. It's a message that has started right at the beginning when God said, let there be. And this message has not stopped since then. There's never been an interruption to this message and it's a message that continues to go on about God's glory and calling everyone to ascribe glory and honor to this great God. And notice verse 2 says, it pours out speech. The word literally means to to gush out or to, to bubble out. So think of a... Kettle, for example, you, you know, you boil water in a kettle and the water starts boiling and it gushes and it uh, pours out water. So it's that sort of an idea. There's a sense of bursting forth, a sense of excitement. One commentator put it this way, the universe cannot contain itself in what it's saying, so much so that there's this excitement and joy and vigor in what it is declaring. It's bursting forth, pouring out speech. There's no tiring, even though the speech has been going on from since the beginning. It's bursting forth speech about God's glory all the time, and it's joyously, tirelessly declaring this. But notice also, there's a cyclical pattern to this declaration. It says, day to day, one day to another day. Each day is bursting forth speech to the next. And even though one day comes to an end, the speech continues on because it's passed on from one day to another day like in a relay race, right? The person holds the baton and then gets to the other person and passes it on. And it's that same sort of idea that from day to day, this message, this declaration is being passed on from one day to the next. And this pattern also cannot be broken. It is fixed. You know, that's why the weatherman can, you know, can say tomorrow the sun will rise at this time and the sun will set at this time. You know, the sun is never going to suddenly appear in the middle of the night and say, oops, I messed up. You know, the sun will never do that. That's never going to happen because these things are fixed by God. You know, it doesn't stop also once the day comes to an end. The night also follows a pattern. One night reveals to the following night knowledge. 
What you can't see during the day is clearly revealed at night. For example, the position of the stars or the different phases of the moon. From one night to another, these things reveal that. And why does it do that? Because God is behind it. The sun and the moon and the stars follow a pattern that God has set. So what verse 2 is saying, this continuous pattern, this relay of speech, of day, daily and nightly, it's showing that there is reason behind it, that there is intelligence behind it. It's pouring out speech because there is an intelligent pattern. See, because there would be nothing to say if all of it happened by chance. There would be no speech if there was no intelligence behind it. But it's precisely because God has set this pattern, there's this speech going on, and it's declaring the glory of God with all its vigor. It's revealing the knowledge and the wisdom of God. The rhythmic harmony of the sun, moon, stars, and everything else in the heavens is continually saying one thing, how glorious is our creator. I mean, this is visual theology right here. And it should be so encouraging for all of us. You know, Christian, if you ever doubt God's wisdom or God's sovereignty or even God's faithfulness, all you have to do is just look up at the sky. You know, the beautiful placement of the stars in the sky or the faithful movements of the sun, they all point back to God's wisdom and faithfulness because he is behind them all. That's why it's doing all those things. And so I want to encourage you, Christian, no matter what you're going through, even if it doesn't make sense to you, sometimes the things that we go through, I want to encourage you that God is sovereignly in control of everything in this universe, and he is wisely and faithfully directing your every step. So just continue to trust in him. I mean, if he can do that with these phenomenal um, celestial bodies, then how much more us, his children, that he will be faithful to and faithful to direct and wisely direct our ways. Now, the third detail that we see about this revelation is the mode of this revelation, and it's that it's inaudible. Verse 3 says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. What an irony, right? I mean, the message of God's glory in the heavens, with all its excitement and bursting forth, is utterly silent. There's not a single word used. There's not a sound at all. But how can that be? How can the heavens declare the glory of God without any words, some might ask? Well, that's because there are many ways to one can speak without spoken words. You can write something and communicate. 
You can use sign language. You can use art. You can sculpt something. You can paint, music. All of these things can communicate significant things, eh? moods and just a whole bunch of different things. Even our actions can communicate things, like touch. If somebody punches you, you know exactly what that person is communicating. Somebody hugs you, you know what that person is communicating. So there are many ways to communicate even without spoken words. And the heavens, they don't use words, but they communicate through their actions. They communicate their message through how they function in this world. So rather than hearing this message through our ears, we hear the message with our eyes as we look at the skies and see how things operate in this world. That's how we hear the message, as we see how these things function in the world. And this inaudible speech, it transcends all human languages. Think about it. Let's say you have an Australian, you have an African, you have a Chinese, and you have an Arab all standing together. They all speak different languages. And yet they can all stand together, look at the heavens, and understand heaven's message, even though they cannot communicate with each other. No one is illiterate when it comes to understanding heaven's speech. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. The message is clearly perceived. Even without words, the heaven speech is crystal clear about God's glory. And no man can ever make an excuse saying, I don't understand. God, you haven't been clear. Now, the fourth detail that we see is the extent of this general revelation, and it's that it's universal. That's in verses 4 through 6. The extent of revelation, it's universal. Look at the first part of verse 4. It says, the line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Now, the word line was a standard of measure, similar to a plumb line. So, for example, the measuring line was used to measure long distances to mark off land for allotment. And so here in the psalm, it's used figuratively to measure off the extent of heaven's declaration regarding God's glory. In other words, if you ask the question, what is the extent or the measure of this message? How far has it gone to the ends of the earth? The line has gone out to the ends of the earth. That's the measure or the extent of where this message has gone. So if verse 3 was saying that there are no language barriers, verse 4 is saying that there are no geographical barriers. So you can be in a desert, you can be in a valley, 
You can be in the middle of the thick jungles of Africa, or you can be in the icy snowcaps of Antarctica, and there are no geographical barriers. There is no place on earth where this message does not go. And this message is for everyone on earth. Why? Because we all live under the same sky. Everything in the heavens is declaring to everyone on the earth the message of God's glory, and not a single person is excluded. It's for the believer and the unbeliever. It's for the agnostic and the religious. It's for the moral and the immoral. The message has gone out everywhere on earth. Now, to illustrate the point that this message is universal, the psalmist now turns to the most prominent celestial body in the sky, the sun, and the way it moves and the impact it has on everything. Look at the last part of verse 4 and verse 5. In them, that's referring to in the heavens, in the heavens he, that is God, in the heavens God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. You know, many people in the ancient Near Eastern culture used to think because the sun was so powerful that it was some sort of a god. But the psalmist is saying, no, the sun is no God. It's no deity. No, it's just a tent dweller that God has created to dwell in the sky. Even the sun is under God's control. Now, the psalmist uses two images to describe the movement of the sun in the sky. First, he compares the rising sun to a bridegroom who's coming out of the marriage chamber the day after his wedding. You know, when you think of that bridegroom, the joy and radiance on the face of the bridegroom would be evident to everyone as he walks down the street. And so this picture is compared to that of the sun's rising as it leaves its tent in the sky. You know, everything is quite dark till the sun pops out from its tent and the sun starts rising and then everything is lit and radiant because the sun's because the sun's radiance is so evident everywhere. Now the second thing, second image he uses to talk about the sun circuit from the east to the west, it, it compares it to a strong athlete running its course. So think of a strong athlete running its course, you know, his face just focused on that end line and joyously with all vigor and joy is just going all the way forward to the finish line. And so the psalmist is comparing the sun's movement even that way to this strong man running his course. And then in verse 6, he ends by saying this, it's rising, that's the sun's rising, is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. What the psalmist is saying is, The sun goes everywhere. It goes to the ends of the heavens. And even its heat is universally felt everywhere. 
And so the psalmist is essentially saying, such is the message of God's glory. It's everywhere and no one can miss it. So let's just quickly recap what we've just looked at. Firstly, we saw that the heavens declare God's glory. And what that means is not only that God is a glorious creator, but the heavens are declaring that he is actually worthy of honor and obedience. And it's calling all of creation to do that as the heavens worship God. Then we saw that this declaration is bursting forth every single moment of every day and every night. And yet, no words are used, but the message is very clear for everyone to understand. There are no language barriers, there are no geographical barriers, and this message has gone out everywhere to everyone on earth, just like the sun in the sky. So now, what can we learn from this? Well, the first thing I want to say is, because of general revelation or natural revelation, every human being is held accountable to God. Because God has made himself so clear in nature. Now, does that mean every man understands this revelation rightly and honors God? Certainly not. We just simply have to walk outside and look at the street and it'll become evident within a minute or two. But the fault is not in the message. The fault is in the one who perceives the message and that's the sad reality of man. Just turn with me to Romans 1 and verses 18 through to 23. And listen to what Romans says. Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. So Roman says that man suppresses the truth about God even though God has clearly made it evident through his creation. But why? Why does man suppress the truth about God? Because man in his sinful state does not want to be accountable to God. See, if I suppress the truth about God, then I don't have to submit to God. I get to live any which way I want. That's why man suppresses the truth about God. And so similarly in Psalm 19, if we get the gist of what it's saying, the person who does not take to heart the message of the heavens is the fool. 
Because what are the heavens saying? God is a glorious creator and you bow down to him and worship him and ascribe honor and glory to him. So the person who does not take heart, the message of the heavens is the fool. Psalm 14.1 says, it is the fool that says there is no God. You know, if you go to the remotest parts of the world, you see people who deny their creator and worship the creation. Sometimes it's the sun, the moon, trees, or some kind of animal. But that, that you might say, oh, that's, you know, remote parts of the world. You come to an urban place like Melbourne, people still deny God by saying what? Nobody plus nothing equals everything that we see around us. It all just happened just like that through some sort of big bang. But they deny God. But they have no excuse to reject God and God will hold them accountable because God has revealed himself clearly in nature. But here's the problem with general revelation or natural revelation. It cannot save anyone. Natural revelation simply says, there is a God, but you do not worship him. And therefore, everyone stands condemned. And that's why we need to go and tell others about God. And how every man has broken God's law and has fallen short of giving glory to him. And therefore, they stand condemned. That's why we need to go out and tell others about who Jesus is and what he did on the cross to provide a way by which sinners can be made right with God and then we call them to repentance. Because if we don't do that, they will be condemned. If they don't hear this message, they will be condemned because God demands that all of creation, including all of mankind, give him glory, and honor. So broadly speaking, you know, aside from this evangelistic need to go and tell others about the gospel of Jesus, there's another beautiful application that is contained even within this Psalm 19 itself. I want you to just quickly follow the logic of this entire Psalm. In verses 1 through 6, The psalmist, he sees the glory of God in the heavens. And then in verses 7 through 11, the psalmist sees the glory of God in his written word. And as he looks into the written word of God, he understands that this creator's name is Yahweh. And that's what's written as capital L-O-R-D in English. And that you see in verses 7 through 9. Suddenly he starts Addressing this creator God as Lord or Yahweh. And you see that in verses 7 through 9. And this Yahweh is the lawgiver of Israel. And so as the psalmist is looking into God's word, as the psalmist is looking into the law of God, he sees that the Lord is perfect and righteous and pure and clean and true. You say, why? Well, how does he understand that when he looks at the law? Because the law in itself is a reflection of the character of the lawgiver. 
So as he sees that the law is perfect and righteous and pure and clean and true, he also understands that this lawgiver, this Yahweh, is perfect and righteous and pure and clean and true. And as he meditates on God's law, and then as he sees more and more of the glory of God, he begins to become undone. And then in verses 12 through 14, you see the personal application of the psalmist as he sees God's glory revealed. See, the more he realizes the glory of God in creation, in the heavens, and in his word, and he sees it more and more, he begins to see his own unworthiness and his own sinfulness. And he realizes, as he sees this glorious God out in creation and in the word of God, that there is no sin that he is incapable of. That if he's left to himself, he will only dishonor God, the God that has made him, this glorious God. And so he cries out to Yahweh and he says, remove my sins, presumptuous sins, willful sins, as well as hidden sins. Why? Why can he cry out to this same Yahweh and say that? Because this same creator, this same Yahweh, the lawgiver, is also Yahweh, his redeemer and rock. Just look at the progression here in this psalm. The creator God of verse 1 is Yahweh, the lawgiver and judge in verses 7 through 11, who is then addressed in verse 14 as my rock and my redeemer. The creator who judges me is also my redeemer and my rock. And look at what he prays for. In verse 15, verse 14, pardon me. He says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. The psalmist is really coming full circle now. And he's saying this, may the words of my mouth, much like the words of the heavens, be pleasing to you. He's saying, Lord, help me by your grace to join with this beautiful orchestra of the heavens and such that my life, the meditation of my heart, not just my words, but my entire life, my heart, bring you glory, the very purpose for which I was created. You know, I said in the beginning that glorifying God is not simply about external activities. But glorifying God is about having a heart attitude that desires to live in humble submission to God. A desire to make his name great, which then will result in certain activities. But these activities ultimately stem from a desire to make God's name great. That's the heart of a believer, to live in such a way that makes God appear to be worthy. Now, here's the thing. All of us sitting here, we fail, don't we? 
of giving glory to this God and ascribing honor to this God. We fail as children. We fail as parents. We fail as spouses. We fail as church members. We fail as employees and employers. We fail as neighbors. In all these areas and more, we fail to honor God and glorify him as he should. But here's the comfort that we have as Christians. Similar to the psalmist who cried out to his Redeemer, that's the comfort we have. But one thing I want you to understand is this psalmist saw a Redeemer and hoped in this Redeemer that would come as a future. But we know the name of this Redeemer, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we know that he is willing to forgive even with all our failings every day as we come to his feet at the cross and ask God to forgive us of our sins and ask him that we would have a desire to then live to make his name great in the way we live our lives. So in conclusion, I would say this. As you walk out of this hall this morning, I want you to realize that God's glory is being proclaimed to you clearly. It has been proclaimed from the beginning of time with all vigor everywhere. Not just that God is, but that he is deserving of glory and honor. And so don't just rush through life or even as you're outside. Look at just different things in all of God's creation and ponder on that and think of how glorious God is and give him the glory. But don't just stop there. Then open and read his word and see him even more, understand his character even more as you see him in the person of Jesus Christ. And sure, as you see his glory and how great he is, you will begin to see how unworthy you are And you will begin to see more and more of your sin. But that shouldn't make you scared. You simply run back to him and you know this redeemer has come and has died on the cross for you. And so you say, Lord, just please forgive me because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And now please help me to live a life worthy of all that you are. And let my life Show how worthy you are, just like all of creation is doing and has been doing since the beginning of time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that without you revealing yourself to us, we would never know you. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us so clearly in and through creation in so many ways that you are deserving of honor and glory and even our submission. Yet, Father, because of our sin, we we were ones who rejected the truth about you and did not want to submit to you. And yet we thank you, the great God you are, came in the person of Jesus Christ and died on the cross for sinners like us so that we would be redeemed from our sins, 
and we would be made right with you and we would now have the privilege to live, to honor and glorify you with the rest of your creation. Oh Lord, keep us to this end and we long for that day when Jesus will return and make everything right and when in a true sense we will be able to glorify you and honor you along with a new creation and a new world. We long for that day until that day. Keep us for your honor and glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.